0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton,
1: originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio,
0: powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm happy to welcome into the studio my next guest, Alex Schuth, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Denali Therapeutics. Alex, thanks for coming in.
1: Carl. Great to be here. Thanks. Great to be back on campus.
0: Yeah. So, Alex, you're a Wharton School grad.
1: That's right. 2005.
0: 2005. That seems like just yesterday, but I guess it's (laughs) now been 14 years.
1: Seems (laughs) like yesterday and a long time ago. (laughs) And a long time ago.
0: All right. Well, we've got a super interesting segment here to learn more about denali why don't you go ahead and give us the elevator pitch I, actually before you do that let me let me point our listeners uh to your
1: website so it is it is what denali it is denalitherapeutics.com
0: okay so denali as in the mountain d-e-n-a-l-i therapeutics.com that's correct great all right if you're someplace safe you can check out denali while we're talking all right give us the elevator pitch for denali
1: Yeah, Yeah, so we have uh, a big goal at Denali. Our goal is to defeat neurodegeneration. So we discover and develop drugs for for diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, which collectively are probably the biggest unmet medical need of, of our time. These are devastating diseases which affect millions of people and their families and there are very limited treatment options available. Um, It's not for lack of trying. In the past, there have been many attempts to discover and develop drugs for these diseases. Most of them have failed. We think it's a new time. We think it's a new era. We think that the progress in technology over the last couple of decades gives us new knowledge and insights into the disease and new technologies, and we're developing some of these technologies Mm -hmm. ourselves, that we can go to the root cause of these diseases, identify the right patients that may benefit most from the drugs and have a much better chance of success than in the past
0: yeah so what's so hard about neurodegenerative diseases I mean I my sense of I'm not I'm no expert in pharmaceuticals but my sense is that many of the major breakthroughs going back say fifty years have been taking these random small molecules and just discovering that they interfere with some known mechanism of disease and so maybe they lower cholesterol or they uh, they, they uh, are anti-inflammatories or they have some therapeutic benefit. Why hasn't that worked in neurodegenerative diseases?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you're exactly right. There has been tremendous progress in medicine and other therapeutic areas. If you look at oncology, for example, in, 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 in the recent past now, with even hopes of curing some patients, the brain is different. The brain is first of all, very hard to get to. Um, and the brain is hard to understand. If you think about a tumor, um, you can cut out a tumor, you can slice it, you can look it under, you can put it under a microscope, you can study it, you can put the small molecules on top and see see what happens, not so much with the brain yeah um, so with the brain, it took uh, very uh, it, it, it took new technologies such as imaging technologies, mm-hmm. the ability to look into the living human brain um, which which really opens up much much progress
0: mm-hmm. and is the approach that you take? To addressing these disease a i mean again in the in the classic pharmaceutical industry, it was what I would call a push. You just tried some stuff and some of it, you didn't know whether you were going to get a a hair loss drug or a diabetes drug, uh, <laughs> and it, but in with neurodegenerative diseases, do you have to be more rational about the about the design? Do you have to look at understanding the mechanism and then say, okay, let's see if we can deliberately interfere with it?
1: Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, ex- that's exactly it. Often the mechanism is not clear. So for yeah. Alzheimer's, for the longest time, the mechanism was not clear. Yeah. What sheds some light into the mechanism is the genetics. Mm-hmm. So if you follow the genetics, you can get some insights into the root causes of the disease. So genes encode for proteins. Mm-hmm. And if you see some differences in genes between individuals that have the disease and the, those that don't have the disease, you can look at those proteins as potential targets which you may want want to modulate as a potential therapy.
0: And is that actually how you've gone at it?
1: That's exactly how we go at it. So we develop a broad portfolio of therapeutic candidates. We have 12 12 drug candidates that we currently work Mm -hmm. on. And every one of those targets, every one of those pathways has a direct genetic link to the Mm -hmm. disease. So we know that those pathways, those targets, are implicated in the Mm -hmm. disease. So there is nothing trial and error um, with with the way we develop drugs, which is, by the way, the way oncologists develop oncology drugs.
0: Yeah, and and this is in the... what is the label for this kind of drug development? Is it, is it a biotechnology? Is that the way you would characterize it essentially?
1: Yeah, it's yeah. very much biotechnology. You yeah. can also call it precision medicine. Yeah. What we're going after are very specific targets and probably also very specific patient populations. Yeah. So what we've seen in other fields of, of, uh, of, of medicine, and again, the oncology example, over time it became clear that breast can- not all breast cancer is the same. It's actually different subtypes, yeah. subtypes of patients where the disease is driven by different biologies. The same is probably true in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other diseases, where some in some patients, the disease is driven by inflammation. Yeah. In other patients, it may be driven by a lack of function in the lysosome, the garbage disposal of the cell, yeah. or other pathways. Yeah. So that's... That's another avenue which we believe will yield a higher chance of success and more hope in the future.
0: All right. So I would say most of the entrepreneurs I have on this show, I mean, my last guest on the show was an MIT student who wanted to buy dinner more affordably and so he created a robotic restaurant uh this somehow feels like a, <laughs> might feel a little bit different like it wasn't you and your buddies sitting around the couch one day and saying you know we ought to cure neurodegenerative disease
1: <laughs> give us no. give us the origin story of denali. No, I'm, I'm 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 glad i'm glad you point that out um, <laughs> so we launched denali uh, just about four years ago yeah. but the the idea, the commitment to do this goes uh, goes several years beyond, several years back to that. So the three co-founders, um, uh, Ryan Watts, who's our CEO, Mark Tessier-Levine, who's a board member of ours, and myself, we are working together at Genentech at mm. a time, at, at a, a big biotech, biopharma company here in, in, in San Francisco. We're building neurodegeneration. We're helping to build neurodegeneration at Genentech. We started that in 2005. A few years in, we realized, um, well, we saw the potential that in order to really make breakthroughs, we probably have to do this in the company of our own. Yeah. Large companies, Genentech is an amazing company. has revolutionized medicine in, 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 in certain areas. But in order to make really breakthroughs, mm. what you need is to, you need to move really fast mm. and you need to take lots of risk. Mm. And that is really hard to do in the context of a large company. So that was in 2010 where the three of us got together at Mark's house and we made the commitment we, we have to do that. 2010 was not a great time to fund yeah. to found a company, especially not one that requires as much capital as as what we were doing. Yeah. So it took a few years. We iterated on the plan and on the path and what we'd work on. And then in 2015, we had um, the group of investors mm-hmm. uh, with us who – saw the world the same way. It's a new era, it's a new time, the time is right. Let's go and do this. Yeah.
0: You know, I I I'm going to tell the listeners a story I had a I had Alex speak to my class uh 2 years ago. It's just started, you know, about half, you know, it, it, 2 years ago in a 4-year journey so far. And you put up your co-founder slide and the class literally busted out laughing. And <laughs> The reason they busted out laughing was the backgrounds of your of your team. <laughs> so maybe you can say a little bit about the background of this team.
1: Yeah, ha- um, happy to. So so Ryan Woods, he's he's our CEO. He is um, uh, he's a neuroscientist uh, by training. He led Genentech's neuroscience research group. Um, he's also uh, an amazing leader, yeah. uh, in- incredibly inspiring. Um, the third of us, uh, Mark Tessie Levine, when we got to know him, he was chief scientific officer um, at Genentech. He is an, also a neuroscientist. He was a neuroscientist running an oncology company, yeah. essentially. He first coined the term, the science breaking open. He then went on to become uh, president of Rockefeller University. Yeah. And uh, recently moved back to the Bay Area to be president at Stanford University. Yeah,
0: so not too many of us have a team like that. And <laughs> on the first slide of okay, here's our here's our team. And you also you're not too shabby yourself. So t- tell us what, what tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so my um, grew up in Germany as you as you may as you may hear on on uh, the accent here. Um, uh, w- went through medical school in Germany. Loved medical school. Uh, loved every every piece of it. Um, uh, loved learning about the science, loved interacting with patients. But at the end of medical school, it's somewhat sobering when you start clinical practice and you realize there is uh, the treatment options are really limited. There is a lot of diseases where there is very little you can do. That was in 2000. 2000 was an area, an era, a time of also great optimism and enthusiasm, as you will remember, the uh, the, the human genome had just been. Uh, sequenced, President Clinton and Tony Blair stood out there and, and announced the human. So I thought I'm going to try something different for a while. Always had an interest in business, so switched over, worked for an investment bank for for a bit. Was in London uh, for, for a little over two years. Thought that was great, learned a lot about capital markets, um, but didn't get closer to making making good medicines and make, making drugs. So uh, got to know Genentech through my banking days. Thought in order to really have a good, solid business career, I need a good business school. Mm. So apply to Wharton, was lucky enough to be accepted, spent two years at Wharton, and then 10 years at Genentech. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I want to go back to that. You said something really interesting, because I would have said if there were anywhere on the planet where you could tackle this problem, it would be at Genentech. Yeah. Um, Genentech has capital, Genentech has labs, Genentech has amazingly talented people. Say a little bit more about why you felt it had to be done as a startup.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes back to to three points. The first one is, again, speed. You have to move, in order for new. you have to move lightning speed. And Genentech is an awesome company, Mm -hmm. but in 2010, it had just been acquired by Roche. It became Mm -hmm. part of an 80,000 global organization with massive power, but not one that can move very fast. Mm -hmm. The second is risk-taking. You really have to try a lot of things, and you have to be wrong many, many times, and Mm -hmm. that's not as easy to do in the context of a large company. And the third is really commitment. Mm-hmm. If you go after an issue like this, if you try to do something that hasn't been done before, you need a team that is singularly focused on the goal. And you cannot have other priorities. Right. And Genentech is the largest oncology company in mm-hmm. the world. Uh, that is number one priority, yeah. as it should be. Yeah. And you don't solve neurodegeneration as priority number three. Mm-hmm.
0: So did you guys feel mutinous or, or um, like traders uh, at Genentech? Or did you talk it over with them? I mean, t- tell us what the relationship <laughs> was with, with Genentech. Yeah.
1: We have a great relationship with, yeah. it, with Genentech. We actually have a collaboration with Genentech yeah. on one of the products that, that, that we work with. Um, it was a rocky time when, yeah. when we left. Um, uh, we did talk it over. With, uh, we did talk over the idea of spinning off a company mm-hmm. from Genentech and doing this. It did not get much traction mm-hmm. um, uh, at 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 the time. Um, it was just not in the business model of of Genentech. So uh, we actually got the very valuable advice from one senior leader who said, "You know, you guys, I think you <laughs> just got to leave and then come back and ask for uh, ask for something, and we'll see yeah. how it goes." Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting. I mean, I think your insights are are exactly right. Which is speed and agility are super important and focus, super important, and also the idea that you've burned the lifeboats, like there's no going back, it's just you guys focused on this thing.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, the other thing about taking on a goal of curing neurodegenerative disease, uh, not a small ambition, is that you, you can't just hack up a, a a minimum viable product in your apartment for uh, for five thousand dollars <laughs> what what does what did the first swing look like like what was the first thing you had to prove how much capital did it take to do that and who did you convince to give you that money
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So we raised a lot of money in our in the Series A. We yeah. raised over two hundred million dollars in the Series A. All right. A. Pause right there.
0: So that's a really <laughs> big difference from building a a uh, food delivery app in in your apartment, which is two hundred million dollars just to get started in that's this right. space. Yeah.
1: I will also say that we spent one hundred seventy-five million dollars last year. So what we're doing is extraordinarily capital yeah. capital intensive. Yeah.
0: So, what kind of investor will give you two hundred million bucks?
1: Those investors that believe that this is the biggest unmet medical need mm-hmm. that the time is right, that if you have the right team and you supply that team with the right tools and the right resources, and you have everyone's commitment that you can actually make progress. It needs a team with a track record um, and this is what we were what we were able to build. The investors that we had, our lead investors in the series A were very big ones and very sophisticated yeah. investors. It was Fidelity, it was Arch, it was Flagship, and interestingly, it was the Alaska Permanent Fund, mm. which is the 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 the, the quasi sovereign wealth fund of the state of Alaska. Yeah.
0: So you named the company after them.
1: <laughs> we did not name the company after them, but they <laughs> did appreciate the name. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and as I recall, it was also the was it the government of Singapore. That, yeah.
1: Tim Ossig, that's correct. The yeah. government of Singapore yeah. also invested, yeah.
0: Yeah, so those are not your typical venture venture investors. But, but they are financial investors, right? They were doing this w- – were they motivated by the wholesomeness of the mission or was that just a nice to have?
1: Yeah. Um, it may have helped, but they're definitely financial investors. Yeah. But they yeah. are financial investors with a very long time horizon. Right. And they look at long trends – and this, they identified as a trend that over many years will play out. And as in other areas of medicine, there will be treatments at some point. Yeah. And that, I think, attracted them to yeah. this investment.
0: If if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. And I'm speaking with Alex Schuth, who's the COO and co-founder of Denali therapeutics um alex you know again in in many ventures when you write that business plan and you raise a series a even for five million dollars or ten million dollars usually you have a pretty good plan for how you're going to solve the problem yeah did you guys know how you were going to cure neurodegenerative diseases when you raised that money (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, cure is a big word, <laughs> right. you have to be careful with all the right, word, cure. All right, all right. but we had a very detailed plan, yeah. so don't get me wrong. Right. we did not yeah. get two hundred million dollars yeah. on a bunch of you know guys who were who were going about this. We had a very detailed plan, we had a very detailed biology strategy, yeah, so we knew we identified certain areas of biology that were previously underappreciated mm-hmm. as playing a role in neurodegeneration. Mm-hmm. So we were going after those, and we had a very detailed plan of certain products that we would discover internally, mm-hmm. and certain products that we would bring in through yeah. deals. So first thing that we did, we acquired a small single asset company mm-hmm. and brought that into us. Mm-hmm. We also brought in another asset from one of our venture investors, mm-hmm. from Fidelity. Mm-hmm. We went out to and very quickly did a series of deals with academic institutions, mm-hmm. where we brought in assets and IP and expertise. Yeah. So by the end of twenty fifteen, after uh seven months after being founded, we had nine programs in house and we had the critical mass to fully go after And
0: some. did you know what those nine programs were before you went and raised the the money?
1: Yes, pretty much. Yeah.
0: And what say what you mean you say asset it sounds yeah. like something the cia would say <laughs> what's an asset sorry sorry an asset an
1: asset in this case being a drug candidate so so, so what drug, we build is yeah. a, a, a drug candidate as and a, a, as yeah, a yeah. drug as, as a drug once it's yeah. once it's approved yeah. yeah so these were molecules with intellectual property and a certain data set yeah. around them
0: and were they all focused on the same on the same disease
1: so they're all focus- So we are really driven by biology, not so much by therapeutic area. And this is, again, a lesson from oncology, that yeah. there are certain biological pathways, certain biological processes that cause neurons, brain cells, to die. Mm-hmm. So, and we focus on three areas of biology. The first one is the role of the immune system in the brain, which for a long time had been underappreciated. Even though Alois Alzheimer in 1906 described mm. it, but he described plaques and tangle and microgliosis, the yeah. immune system. Everybody focused on plaques and tangles, and the immune system was believed to be a consequence of neurodegeneration mm. rather than a cause. But there is growing evidence through genetics that the immune system plays a role. So, bio- the role of the immune system was is biology one two is the role of the lysosome. The lysosome is in the cell, is the garbage disposal in the cell. The lysosome keeps the cell healthy by processing proteins and other things. If the lysosome doesn't work well, bad stuff happens in the cell, so that's the second. The third is an area what we call cellular homeostasis, so just keeping a nice, smooth environment within the cell. So these are very specific areas of biology that we're going after, and within those, we went after specific targets and pathways.
0: Okay, but let me ask it maybe in a simpler way. Would, would those, with uh, uh, with the biology you're working on, apply then to more than one disease? Yes. Or, okay. So if you could make some breakthrough. Yes. In in. In, in one of those pathways, it could be applied, say, both to Alzheimer's and to ALS or
1: something that's like that? It, that's okay. exactly right. So right. one of our, we have um, two programs in clinical testing right mm-hmm. now. We run three clinical trials. One program, which is, which is, a, on a, which is targeting a protein called RIP kinase, mm-hmm. we inhibit that protein. Mm-hmm. And this is in testing for ALS and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and soon also in MS. Mm-hmm. So it's an inflammatory mechanism with the idea that if the immune system can be modulated in such a way that neurons don't die that it may have right. a broader application
0: so how should we think about those nine assets? Were they yep. nine parallel paths, nine shots on goal, or were they were they Nine bricks that yeah. put together into a big wall. Yeah.
1: So they are there are nine independent attempts. For yeah, for. we don't really like the shots on goal yeah. thing because it does seem like there's some randomness to it. You just sort of a shotgun, which which there is nothing random about about what we do. This, yeah, this these are these are nine programs, which each of them has a very solid. Uh, therapeutic rationale has a genetic link to the disease. The molecules are engineered in a specific way to get into the brain. We use biomarkers. But they're all very different. So they're different with with respect to their risk profile, with respect to the timelines, etc.
0: Now, was there enough data at the time you put together this plan, that you could assign probabilities of success to each of those yeah. assets?
1: Very dangerous game to apply <laughs> <laughs> to apply probabilities of success, yeah. especially in nerdy generation, where the market seems so... Once you start sort of... Um, probability adjusting, not a good area to build a financial model.
0: And, like and that. that's because the markets are like trillions of dollars. That's right. And so everything looks,
1: everything, looks good, yes.
0: even if it's a, a one in a million chance. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. You yeah. really have to treat everyone the same. You have to do the critical experiment on each of those programs. You have to do, as a good scientist would, the experiment to invalidate your hypothesis.
0: But I guess what I'm trying to get at is you wanted to maximize the chance that you're going to get something uh clearly you had some intuition that one asset was was not enough Mm -hmm. but how did you know it wasn't going to take 20.
1: yeah so at some point um more is better but at sometimes at some point you run into scale there's just so much you can do in a company there's just Mm -hmm. so many programs you can Mm -hmm. you can execute with rigor and and full attention at the same time we started at the end of the at that first year with nine we have 12 now it's also important to say we stopped six programs along the way and replenished them so the idea is to constantly have a very dynamic portfolio and you hear the language so asset and portfolio yeah. it's very much business school yeah. inspired portfolio modeling where. You have independent as much of independent assets as possible that are not linked, right? Um, that don't share a,
0: a common cause of failure, potential cause of failure. Yeah.
1: That's yeah, that that's right. Yeah,
0: but so let me let me see if I can feed that back to you. Mm-hmm. So, and your argument is that from an organizational standpoint, you can't really handle more than about a dozen programs, yeah. and but you want but more is all oh, it's equal. More is better. So that leads you to have about a dozen dozen programs. Some of those are going to fail, in which case you're going to replenish them. So you're always working on about a dozen. But is a dozen enough to be pretty sure that something's going to work?
1: we could not be sure <laughs> <laughs> thanks for pressure testing us yeah, yeah, again yeah. we 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 cannot be sure we can yeah. give it the best shot that we yeah. have we think we do through the rigorous approach on the science through the technology through the people but there is no certainty in this yeah. business
0: well maybe you can just give us a sense of where you are so you you've you now have 12 in the portfolio yep. and if i caught what you said right there have been a total of about 18 That you've explored. That's right. Uh, Are any of them, uh, you don't like the goal metaphor, are any of them uh, past the finish line?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we um, are in clinical testing for two of those programs Mm -hmm. across three different uh, indications. We plan by the end of this year to bring the next molecule, the next program into the clinic. Um, We also have. The broad preclinical portfolio which will then subsequently yield clinical candidates yeah
0: all right well alex on on that note we're going to take a little break and hold our listeners in suspense to hear what what happens next um, i'm carl ulrich Vice Dean of entrepreneurship and innovation and i'm speaking this hour with alex schuth who's the co-founder of denali therapeutics stay with us as we continue our conversation after the short break, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Alex Schuth, who's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Denali Therapeutics. So Alex and I were chatting at the break, and I said, what should we talk about? And he said, we got to talk about the blood-brain barrier. So while we're fresh off a break and while everyone's fresh, uh, we're going to learn a little science so and, and <laughs> medicine. So, So Alex... And, and this is radio, so no PowerPoint. So, all right. All right. so, uh, so give us, tell us about the blood-brain barrier and why it's important to Denali. Yeah,
1: yeah. Ha- happy to do that. Let me, let me introduce our little science lesson yeah. here for why, why it is important. So one of the first things that we did when we set up the company is we did what we call the graveyard analysis. We looked at all the trials in Alzheimer's disease in the past that have failed and tried to learn from failure in the past to then address the re- those, those reasons. One of the key obstacles in the past was getting drug into the brain. Mm. The brain is fascinating on many aspects. One of, the, one of the things about the brain is that it needs a very controlled environment yeah. that is very safe, where you always have the same blood pressure, you always have the same temperature, everything is constant in, in there. The way evolution did that over time was to evolve the so-called blood-brain barrier. Mm. What the blood-brain barrier does is it protects the brain from toxins Mm -hmm. and from all substances that should not be in the brain. The way it does it is essentially through an inner lining in the blood vessels in the brain. So the blood vessels in the brain are different from the blood vessels in the rest of the body. In the rest of the body, nutrients and everything is just exchanged through diffusion. They're fenestrated. There are holes in it in the brain. Everything has to be actively transported hmm. in, into the brain, and there there are specialized transporters, proteins that shuttle nutrients through from the vessel into the brain. Yeah. So
0: wait. So when I so when I have that martini after work, how, <laughs> how does the ethanol get in get in the brain?
1: <laughs> yes. So good point. You're going straight. So there are certain substances that yeah. can that can shuttle through ah. when they are very small. Okay. And when they have certain properties, right. so certain small molecules, including alcohol, and certain and certain small molecule drugs, they can they can yeah. cross cross uh, freely.
0: But these are huge molecules, the ones you're talking exactly. about. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So we what we're talking about are what what is called large molecules, also called biologic proteins. Yeah. So this is true biotechnology, yeah. right? So this is using antibodies or enzymes, which have proven to be fantastic drugs in other therapeutic areas, in oncology or in lysosomal storage diseases. But they haven't been able to show their potential in the brain because they wouldn't get in. Just in terms of size, these are 500-fold bigger than your typical typical aspirin or or, or something like that. So we had to find a way to get those molecules into the brain. Mm. And this is where one of the... One of the technologies that we're developing at Denali is a proprietary technology to engineer these molecules, antibodies and enzymes, in such a way that they take advantage of the natural, of the endogenous transporter, mm-hmm. and just hitch a ride mm. through the blood-brain barrier into the brain. Mm.
0: And so this would be sort of a platform technology. That, that is a, yeah. that
1: is absolutely a platform yeah. technology. Yeah.
0: and. And so there are certain molecules that are already being used essentially to get across the blood-brain barrier. You, you bind to those and hitch the ride in and out.
1: Yeah. So there are certain endogenous transporters yeah. that serve the natural purpose of shuttling substances yeah. into the brain. So we use a transporter called transferrin receptor, mm. which shuttles iron from the blood into the brain. Mm. We can latch on to that transferrin receptor in a way that doesn't interfere with iron transport and hitch a ride through the blood-brain barrier, through the cell layer into the brain. Mm -hmm. And what we can do is we can increase the amount of drug in the brain uh, by about 20 or 30 fold. Wow. So then we get into areas where those drugs really can, can, can be effective at at the target.
0: So, so how does the development process work? Do you work on the different pieces independently? So do you work on, okay, how can we get a molecule into the, into the brain? And then do you work directly in brain tissue with that molecule to say, does it interfere with the disease?
1: Yeah. So, so this, Mechanism that I just described. It's called receptor-mediated transcytosis. Mm-hmm. This is an idea that is, that is not new. That is an idea that's been around actually for a couple of decades, but it hasn't really been what we call industrialized. It, mm-hmm. it has been mostly an academic idea that, that we put in, put into action. We have amazing protein engineers, antibody engineers, that are able to change the amino acid sequence of the antibodies in such a way that they can latch on. Mm. Now, how we test those antibodies is a really good question because it is another sign of how the confluence, the convergence of different technologies open up a new space. So, for example, we had to make a mouse using CRISPR technology with a humanized blood-brain barrier. <laughs> okay, hold it, hold it, hold it.
0: You had to make a mouse, yeah. by which Sound, you mean. <laughs> okay, so that
1: sounds, that's, <laughs> that's so what, what CRISPR technology, a yeah. gene editing technology, mm-hmm. what that allows is to, is, to, is to edit certain genes in an organism. And the blood-brain barrier of the mouse is rather similar to the blood-brain no. barrier of a human, except in certain instances. So, for example, transferrin receptor. Yeah. So we introduced human transferrin receptor mm. into the blood-brain barrier of a mouse. Mm. That is a proprietary mouse that lives <laughs> in our vivarium in South San Francisco. And it is the perfect model system to I study see. these mm. antibodies that, if, if we can get those into the brain. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so that's... By the way, that's all super fascinating. It just gives us it should give everyone so much humility about just how hard these problems are and also just how much intellectual property is associated with doing something like this. I mean, you've got intellectual property in the tools Mm -hmm. that you use to build to to engineer these these uh, these these treatments. It's pretty 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 amazing. But so so you you will have a team working in mouse models just on the transport yes. phenomenon and then what about the, the the disease mechanism itself? Will you then separately work in brain tissue to try to understand how to interfere with the disease mechanism?
1: Yes, that's, okay. that's exactly right. So we have at Denali currently, we're about 200 people at Denali. No about 130 140 of those are scientists we have about 50 in biology and they do basic biology Mm -hmm. so what they they study they study brain tissue they study what is the impact of certain mutations in the genome on the survival of 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 brain cells and then we have protein engineers chemists and then we have the group we're called the biomarker biomarker Mm -hmm. group that really also studies and and the, the the impact on disease and tra- and and tries to identify and validate biomarkers to track uh, the impact of our drugs on the disease, and then we have the clinical development group, of course.
0: All right, yeah, it is so humbling. The whole thing is is just mind blowing and humbling. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question that you said you couldn't answer at the break, but I want our <laughs> listeners to hear it and hear why. So I at the break, I said, Alex, so give us a forecast. How how long is it going to take before you actually have something that that works? What's the answer?
1: Yeah, we really cannot predict how long it takes. We there are we have two programs in clinical development right now, we yeah. will take additional programs into clinical development. But we cannot be driven by a timeline on a, on a time to market. Yeah. We have to be rigorous in the development. We have to be able to stop and we have to be ready to stop programs at any time yeah. if, the data, if the data don't hold up. Yeah.
0: What, what does clinical development mean? In this context,
1: clinical development, as in as in other therapeutic areas, uh, means it's typically divided into three phases Mm -hmm. of of testing the effect of a drug in humans. It starts with a phase one where you test the safety and and the tolerability of a drug. Mm -hmm. Then typically so those
0: are healthy, healthy volunteers just does it make them sick. Yeah, that's right it's yeah.
1: it's it's often healthy volunteers um sometimes it's also directly in patients but yeah. but the primary endpoint is safety and tolerability, mm-hmm. and also we try to learn more about the drug in those studies what 's called the pharmacokinetics mm-hmm. and the pharmacodynamics, how the drug mm-hmm. distributes in the body, and then also what 's really important, do we modulate the biology so through so called biomarkers again so we can test in healthy volunteers we can test. Does the drug address the biology that right. we want to modulate right. because healthies have the have the same biology yeah. as, as well phase two is early efficacy studies and phase three are typically the confirmative efficacy yeah. studies yeah and rem- you
0: you said it but remind us yeah. you have a couple of treatments that are in phase one is that right that's right yeah okay so you got a lot a lot of road ahead of you
1: that's correct <laughs> that is correct and I will I will uh, agree with your point that it is very humbling along the way yeah
0: yeah. So, so I I wanted to ask you that because it tees up a a question I've wanted to ask, which is, you hear so many people lamenting that Wall Street has short term perspective. No one's willing to invest for the for the long term. Everyone's looking quarter to quarter. What's your response to that? That clearly can't be the case for your business, right?
1: It is not the case. Um... It was not our experience, but I will not generalize with yeah. respect to investors here. So what we have found with the investors that we have, I don't think they are the average investor, mm. um, but there are groups of investors out there which are very long term. Um, we have uh, one investor, Bailey Gifford, out of out of Scotland, mm. um, early investors in Illumina, in Amazon. Mm. That is what they look like. They look in long term uh, trends. Capital is is available. It was one of the, when we went on the IPO roadshow, right? Yeah. so so two weeks and everybody tells you it's going to be crueling and it's going to be awesome. In fact, it was actually very inspiring yeah. in the end because there were a number of investors that welcomed us and said, yes, we're with you. The time is right. We believe in the team. We believe in the approach and we're, we're going to be with you now. They hold us accountable to our data at every step along the way, at every update call, they see are we making progress? Are we moving forward? Yeah. But it's not about quarterly results. Yeah. It cannot be in yeah. this business.
0: Yeah. If if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel one thirty two. I'm Carl Ulrich and I'm speaking with Alex Schuth, who's the co founder and CEO of Denali Therapeutics. Um, you 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 jumped You mentioned the IPO and I wanted to, it was definitely on my list of things to talk about. So let's spend a a little, little bit on it. Um, you know, most people would think of IPOs as occurring when companies have achieved some profitability milestones, they have their business model figured out and so forth. That's not really the way it works in, in pharmaceuticals. Uh, talk, tell us a little bit about why that is. Yeah.
1: The capital market for a biotech company, unders- it's very sophisticated investors. Yeah. They understand the science, they understand the timelines, they understand the risks that are that are involved. The reason to go public is because we need the access to capital. Yeah. This is so capital intensive, we yeah. need to be able to go back to the market at, at times. It's not uncommon. In, in fact, it is by now the, almost the norm for companies to go public um in early phases of clinical development yeah. there are also companies that go public in in, in pre so the capital is definitely available.
0: but but let me just push a little bit on the finance questions because yeah. y- you said you'd raised you had raised in um with in private equity venture capital around 200 million how much how much had you raised
1: in total, we raised three hundred and eighty before the iPO okay, between the, between the series A and the series b series
0: b series A three hundred and eighty okay. but in today 's world, there are plenty of private equity investors who will do billion dollar uh, private private investments. Um, why do you choose IPO over using one of those investors yeah.
1: Those billion-dollar investments are less common in, in the biotech space, yeah. maybe more in the technology space. But really, the the driver for us was we need the access to the very liquid, very deep um, public market. Yeah. We need to be able to go back to the market at any time and not be, not be uh, dependent on yeah. the private market.
0: Yeah, so probably just to put a little sharper point on that, when you get a billion dollars from SoftBank, they are taking a. They have a ninety percent probability of success with that investment. Something like that. Uh, a billion dollar bet on you guys is not a ninety percent probability of success. So you would have to be a very, very deep pocketed investor to take those kinds, kinds That's right. of bets. That's yeah. Right. So uh, explain just a little bit how how the public markets work. So you raised two hundred and forty million dollars, something like that, in the in the IPO. Um, can you literally? at any moment get another 100 million dollars if you need to is that the way it works yeah
1: so we have not raised more money yeah. since since the ipo um the public market is very liquid yeah through shelf filings it is it is possible to raise money um on on very short notice yeah. when when needed um it is in biotech an established a very established yeah. very liquid very transparent market
0: yeah all right so so let's go back to the actual i p o process so it's not that unusual a thing it's a mm-hmm. standard thing in 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 biotech mm-hmm. and but tell us a little bit about what it's like to go public what was the what's the <laughs> process like yeah.
1: yeah it's um it's it's a lot of fun it's actually it was it was um it was a very healthy exercise for the company yeah. as well because once you go public you really we had a business plan beforehand and um, we had a very thought through, but once you go public, it raises the level of the game. Yeah. You really have to articulate your plan and you really have to get everything. You need your strategy airtight. You need your, your, your plans, your your numbers. So we knew that. We had the company set up from the beginning as at some point we will go public. So we had all the controls and everything in place. So the transition for us was not as dramatic um as it might be for some other companies so we went public in uh december of of 2017 um we had a number of our investors previously that are public market investors so we knew that we knew a large group of the investors that would invest in the ipo Ah, i see like fidelity for instance those kinds of fidelity to bailey gifford and there were several others who who knew they would participate in The IPO. So
0: I, I I couldn't resist just taking a look at your share price, and I'm you know I know you're an officer of public companies, you have to be super careful about this. But but um, uh, your share price moved ten percent today. Uh, so what's it like to deal with that volatility that's out there yeah. just in public yeah. uh, every day? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, the answer is the share. The, the answer is um, the share price matters, but internally it doesn't. It really doesn't matter, yeah. and you have to you have to be disciplined and not look at the not share look. price yeah. all the time, yeah. and not make the share price. The, mar- the biotech is highly volatile. Yeah. Um, it it moves with or without news from the company. So, what really matters is that we make progress on the science that that increases over time, the valuation of the company that we then have further access to capital. But day to day, it does not
0: matter. So the other thing I I wanted to turn to uh, uh, another topic, which is, even though you're still an indeterminate time away from customers and customers paying for these drugs, you have revenues. So talk a little bit about how that works and the partnerships with with other players. Yeah.
1: Yes. So we do have collaboration revenue. Yeah. We had in uh, 2018 mm-hmm. last year, we uh, signed two collaboration agreements with large global pharmaceutical companies, one with Takeda from Japan and, and one with Sanofi in, mm-hmm. in, in, in France. Um, these collaborations uh, we also look at them in the long term as increasing our chance of success by teaming up with established global pharma companies that can um, that allow us to broaden our portfolio and help us to share some of the costs and, and and some of the risk so these um, transactions are again not unusual in the biotech space they they are a common way for companies to um, to, to, to help finance the R&D expense um, before you get to the market and you actually have revenues from selling drugs. So what you, in, in, in the case, what you offer, for example, Sanofi here with one of our programs is the ability to jointly with us mm-hmm. develop and then commercialize the mm-hmm. product. We will share development costs and we will share the revenues 50-50 down the road. Down the road. And in exchange for that, sanofi paid us 125 million dollars up front they will pay us milestones um, along the way
0: yeah so it's it's almost it as you said it's, it's literally another form of financing effectively
1: it, it is more than fine. It's the financing it's more, is part of it, but also, it's more of finding, yeah. but they also there is true value in the collaboration yeah. with respect to experience and clinical development, global reach in with the, with respect to the commercial infrastructure, certain certain tools and technologies that they can provide.
0: Okay, well, I want to you uh, ret- come back to you and, and your background, your education, you had left investment banking, and went to Wharton to get an MBA, uh, in pursuit of this goal of really working on this large medical need. Uh, Talk a little bit about your day to day role as COO. What's what's the job like? And what do you actually do? (laughs) It's,
1: it's, uh, it's a little bit of everything. But what what my what my role is, is um, everything around our pipeline and our portfolio. So it's portfolio management and corporate development. So it's broadly around portfolio strategy, the question how many programs do we work on? Yeah. Where do we get those programs from? How do we partner up with large pharmaceutical companies in the execution of that? So in my team are the, the program directors, the people who work um, who, who drive the program execution day to day, as well as uh, the deal makers who and the alliance managers who work with academic institutions and other companies.
0: And, and how has, if you reflect on the decision you made back how many years, it's been 15, almost 20 years, make the decision to leave clinical practice and to pursue business, uh, was that the right decision? And, and how have you reflected on that uh, in, in this role?
1: I think it was the right decision yeah. for me. I do, I do miss medicine. I, yeah. I would have liked to be closer to medicine. I, I love medicine, but for me, it was it was the right decision. Um, uh, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, maybe as uh, as our
0: our last topic or one of our last topics, we could talk a little bit about the organizational development at Denali. You are a company that has to plan for really long time horizons and your primary asset is human capital so talk a little bit about how you've thought about building the building the organization
1: yeah Yeah. it's it's a really good point because we are in this for the long term and our people need to be in this for the long term so we think a lot about sustainable how high performance right so if you found if you found a company if you start in a startup there is so much going on, and it's it's a race, and it's um, uh, it is it is it is wild, it's exhausting. People work work hard in a long time, but you have to have people that are able to to work for years and 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 maybe for mm-hmm. for, for many years on this program. So, we think a lot about um, we think a lot about culture. We think a lot about values. We think a lot about different phenotypes of people, right? How to recognize and to sell Monotypes. it. <laughs> <laughs> so all right. So it gives away that we are a biology company. Yeah. So phenotypes is there are different people on a team. Take a sports analogy. Yeah. You need different te- you need yeah. different players on a team. Um in many companies it's the inventor get, that gets all the credit and all the spotlight. But the reality is the inventor, him or herself doesn't really Get anywhere. Inventor needs a problem solver. Mm-hmm. Needs an accelerator. Needs a connector that pulls another resource. Needs a what we call a grinder as well. So somebody who just walks through. So we think a lot. We think a lot about um, how do we build a company for the long term. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and and so what does tell us a little bit about the feel of Denali? What's it like? What does it look like? And was the organization feel like? Yeah
1: it uh it uh is awesome it yeah. it what what really would look looking back at those four years what really blows me away when i when I walk in in the morning are the people that that joined us and it has exceeded my and ryan's and and mark's wildest expectation it's it's not the number of people it's it's the type of people it's their their qualification but really how they show up every day and it's the it's the commitment so if you we, if you summarize the feel at it acknowledges it's this commitment: it's commitment to the cause, mm-hmm. the cause of defeating g- degeneration, but then really commitment to each other. So this feeling that we're all in this together; that there is no individual success; that we can only succeed together. So it's a very non-hierarchical group. Yeah. So it's it's Silicon Valley-inspired open office. There is no there is there is no assigned seating. Um, we have no org chart. Um, literally no org, literally chart. no org chart, which yeah. drives some people crazy at yeah. some point where. So, yeah. too, but we think org charts box people in, yeah. right? It shows where they are, and so we try to stay away from titles as much as possible. We don't talk about titles. It doesn't matter if on a team somebody is a director or a senior director. So, it is a very collaborative organization. What we cannot have is people with with big egos. Yeah, we cannot have people who think that it can that we can solve things So it's it's uh. It's an exciting and, and also a very fun environment. But you mentioned the point earlier. It's also very humbling. We have setbacks. I mentioned the six programs that we stopped along the way. We have, we have some successes, and we have setbacks yeah. um, all the time.
0: Yeah. You know, I've wondered if it takes a certain kind of person to work on a project where you may not even in your own career see the end of the program. That's right. Yeah. So that's, it's a pretty special kind of person who will, who will work in 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 that kind of environment, and you probably have to focus on the satisfaction of process as much as anything. Yeah.
1: You would ha- you have to be driven by the mission, you really have to be driven by the cause. And you have to really believe that every day you're getting a step closer, or over time, you get closer to that goal. I wouldn't say we're driven by process. I, yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, by the journey. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yes. yeah. All right. Well, uh, Alex, every time I, I talk to you and I hear about Denali, I am humbled and also just awed and uh, so thankful that you guys are doing this work. So thanks so much for making the time to come into the studio and telling us this fascinating story.
1: Thank you so much, Carl, for inviting me. That was great.
0: All right. You can check out Denali online at Denali therapeutics.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.